Welcome to A New Kind of PD, Teaching Channel's podcast where we tackle challenges in education and provide ways to inspire and engage in meaningful professional development. I'm Erica Snyder, Engagement Coordinator for Teaching Channel, coming to you from our location in New York City. This week, we'll be discussing special education with a focus on inclusion with teacher and author Shelley Moore. Her book, One Without the Other, Stories of Unity Through Diversity and Inclusion, provides a fresh perspective on what inclusion can look like in schools. We'll be chatting about that today. And as always, we'll close the show with how to inspire PD about the topic and vibrant collaborative ways. Thanks for being here, and be sure to check out all of the resources listed in the podcast description today. Class is now in session. Hi, everyone, and welcome, Shelly. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to hear what you have to say. We're going to jump right on in and have you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and how you came to work with special education students. So um, I am originally from Edmonton, Alberta, up north in Canada, and um, so yeah, no, I grew up there, and just um, had a very, a very hard time through school, and I struggled a lot. And um, there was a, there was a particular year that you'll read about the book where I had a very hard year, and I ended up being sent to an alternate setting school, and I actually um, totally thrived. And so it was kind of a really significant turning point for me. Because I was trying to figure out like what made that what made that different, and um, it kind of was uh, when I decided to become a teacher. So that's what I am now, and kind of work with students um, who struggle and have a hard time in school. And so um, I got my my um, first degree at the University of Alberta and um, in special education, and you know at, at first attempted to kind of you know work with students. Who are at risk and some behavior difficulties, which was my which was my profile. Um, and uh, the first few years I did, I worked um, in my very first job was in the Bronx, in New York, and I taught grades four or five and worked with this, these amazing kids in this incredible community. And uh, eventually came back to Canada. I'm now in Vancouver, and um, this is when things started to shift a bit because I started to work with students with um, developmental and intellectual disabilities. And although that wasn't the original path, um, it totally found me and I just absolutely fell in love. And so that's where I've been um, the last you know, decade or so is, is trying to figure out what school looks like for them. Because um, this is a high school and um, in particular in, in regards to inclusive education, um, we were totally in the school, but we kind of were down the hallway. And so about 10 years ago, we started this journey on what what um, inclusive education and schooling could look like for some of those students who need the most support in our, in our schools and uh, what that means for them. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, knowing that now you're in Canada, it's not all that different <laughs> um, for our U.S. listeners and knowing that you have the New York background. Yeah. Um, I think most educators have a sense of what inclusion means, um, but your perspective is a little bit different. So how do you define inclusion and what makes that different from the traditional definition? Um, I think um, for a very long time, I I also strived for and, you know, attempted to kind of define my practice according to the traditional definition. And, um, and, and And I realized, like, I kind of misunderstood my role a bit. So, and I can kind of explain this um, when I was when I was starting to, to kind of work and see how you know my kids were going to get into classrooms. And you know, like this is a, like a, a senior secondary, and so there was a lot of pushback about how you know a biology eleven class could be meaningful for someone with a cognitive disability. And 
and so you know I kind of went through kind of went through the motions of okay so yeah like if they're going to be included they have to physically be there and so that was our first step was just to kind of get you know get them into classrooms um, but it didn't go well it didn't go well because uh, you know the, the the part that I learned was that you know inclusion can't just be about them physically being there and I think most people get that you know like you can't just breathe the same same air and say that you're included and so um, the first step yes absolutely was getting them to the classrooms but the the larger part of that really came from you know how do we make these places meaningful and you know there's um, a diagram in the book where I kind of describe the difference between this and um, you know I think about the words segregation and integration which are often words that are used um, synonymously with inclusion and I think you know we we kind of use integration and and inclusion but really how I define the difference between those is you know integration is, is that first step of getting kids in classes and and them being there um, but for a lot of times in a lot of places we've got there and stopped and but really it's really how do we move from integration to inclusion where inclusion is this community that that can't just be a place and it's not something you can force like it really is a voluntary placement where kids engage and have a contribution and a, and a meaningful role and and so I think whereas a lot of times you know looking at inclusion as absolutely um, a human right and, and equal citizenship and, and all of those things you know the, the part that really makes this part of um, like a critical movement is that having the kids there is more than that it's actually then moving away from that to towards having them be contributors to this to this community and um, they become just one of the many students in that class that are diverse and, and I think that's the part where I started to realize that this was a little bit different and you know looking at the whole class as diverse and not just the students with disabilities as diverse and, and I think this is where it's really started to shift in terms of um, inclusive education is no longer just about special education anymore and it's it's really about you know how do we get better at teaching to diversity which can include ability and disability but isn't limited to that I mean it also includes gender and culture and language and race and experience and, and I think that it's, it's being able to respond to that that is really about inclusive education rather than just trying to see how one person can fit into an already existing class and so I think I think that that is, is the part that I see is different is that this isn't just about making a classroom work for one person but how does that one person actually fit into this diverse community where everyone is diverse you know not just that one person I guess does that make sense yeah I loved that um, and how you laid it out in the book with the stories that you tell about the students and and what that looks like for them to become community members um, everybody based on a whole bunch of, of diverse elements um, in the classroom. Um, so if people are interested, you have a couple of videos on YouTube, and we love videos here at Teaching Channel, so people should check out the links in the episode description. Um, you've got one on a TED Talk, and also one of your YouTube videos talks about um, probably my favorite story that you told um, is one about a bowling analogy. Um, and I was yes. wondering if you could give a brief overview of that and why that kind of sums up the approach to inclusion as diversity, you know, and, and teaching to yeah. the diverse students, not just special ed students. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, this part of, part of my, my learning, how I've learned all of this is through stories. And you'll see that, you'll see that through the book. And it's just basically, you know, the, the different students and experiences that I've come across that just helped me figure this out, um, for my context and, and for my teaching practice. And, and, um, and so the bowling, the bowling metaphor is one, um, basically, I was I was in a bowling I was on a bowling team when I was like ten, and who knew that this experience would actually come in handy? But um, I read a comic once, and it was a Peanuts comic. And in the comic, um, like Charlie Brown says to Lucy or whatever, and um, says my my teacher says that bowling is like teaching, and then Lucy responds, "Well, she must be a horrible teacher then." And I read it, and I was like. The comic is wrong. The comic <laughs> is wrong because even the comic was assuming that you're 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 rolling down the middle. And so this was kind of the beginning of this because based on my prior knowledge of bowling and this this comic, I, I kind of like had a few sleepless nights of, of figuring out this metaphor. But basically, how the metaphor goes is, you know, you know, like how is bowling like teaching? And I think you know, you you we roll we roll our ball down the middle. Um, we try we try and get to all of our kids or all the pins and. You know, sometimes we get them all, and that's great. And sometimes we don't, and but that's okay because we have another chance. But you know, the the part that is interesting is, you know, if if when I'm rolling the balls in the middle and I don't get everybody, um, the pins that are left standing are usually those outside pins. That's called the seven ten split, and that shot is actually the hardest in in bowling. Um, I did a little research just to make this, you know, really work. But um, professional bowling has been televised for fifty five years, and in that time. That shot, the seven ten split, has only been made successfully three times. So I mean, even for the best bowlers in the world, that is is the hardest shot. And I mean, that's so much like teaching. And those outside pins for us are kids who need the most support and kids who need the most challenge. And so the chances of getting to both of them are, are really almost impossible. And so we end up kind of choosing one, and one's left standing, and it just feels horrible. And so I think you know, the the part of this that 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 kind of like got me was I remember bowling and I remember you know we weren't taught to roll down the middle and this is the part that that kind of like woke me up a bit and I spent some time watching bowling and I realized that no bowler rolls the ball down the middle and so I, I called a bowler I called him a bowler and I was like talking to him about this whole like you know throwing balls at a curve and all of these things and, and basically said you know there's a misunderstanding in bowling that it's the job of the ball to knock down all the pins, but actually it's the job of the ball to create an effect so that the pins knock down each other. And and I just I love I love that that thought because mm -hmm. I think we 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 don't I think we don't give the kids enough credit for helping each other fall. Um, and so and so I asked them and I said you know well you know I understand that you don't aim for the middle when you shoot. So where do you aim when you want to create that that domino effect? And he says. You know, you aim, he aims for the pins that are the hardest to get to, not not the head pins. And it just, like, it kind of all came together in that moment because I think to myself, you know, so often, you know, what we're doing to support kids is after the fact, like after the lesson or after the teaching and trying to kind of retrofit um, their supports. Um, but when you think of it in terms of bullying, you know, that's where you start. And so if you think about the students in your classroom who are the hardest to get to and you aim for them first, it's kind of like, you know, what do they need to be successful? And then you do that for everybody. And, you know, that's where it connects to universal design for learning. And I think in terms of my own practice, you know, changing my aim, 
totally changed how I taught and it made the biggest difference in terms of learning, in terms of behavior, because it was no longer about that kid. It was about the starting point and using that kid as the entry point for everyone. And, um, and it made, it made a huge difference. And I think, you know, and just like the bowling metaphor says, like you will knock, you'll knock down more pins on the first try if you change your aim. And so I kind of always think like, how would your teaching change if all you did was change your aim, you know? And then I think, um, you know, figuring out how to do this is really linked to that idea of this is not doing more, this is doing different. And the different is choosing who you start with and choosing who you aim at. Because the head pins will be fine. They're going to get knocked down. But they're going to get knocked down by each other rather than the ball, which is actually probably better for them anyway. Yeah, I loved that. Um, that whole sequence in your book was so great. And I was like, this is this is fantastic, right? So um, people are, mm-hmm. are, you know, wondering now, like, Okay, so how do you make it so that inclusion isn't more work, but different work, like you said? And also, like, what's the research that backs yeah. it up? Like, how how do I make this shift? Like, it, it's not going to be necessarily a quick shift or an easy shift, but what does that look like right. in practice? So you give some tips on how to do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, in terms in terms of, of, of teaching, there's a few, or teaching practice shifts, there's, there's a few different things that are at play here. Um, a lot of the work that I do is, is going and working with school districts and teachers to make this shift. But um, the part that, that's important to know is that with this shift is also shifting um, kind of to more 21st century teaching practices. And it's very, very hard to teach 21st century learners in a 19th century teaching way. And I think, you know, part of this is, is also kind of reimagining the structures of schools. And so, um, for, for example, like one way when I think about when I think about students, so so often there's been kind of this this goal of homogeneity, right? And um, which aligns nicely with the goal of education in the 19th century. We needed students to work in factories, and so we needed people to do the same. Um, but you know, society has evolved, so like the goals are no longer that students sit in rows, work alone, and, and you know, respond to bells. Like it, it's we we need kids to be more interactive and it's no longer a knowledge-based society where you kind of transfer this knowledge to kids like kids will come to us knowing more most of the time so it's really about you know what do kids need to do not what kids need to know um and who do, who do kids need to become not necessarily how to be compliant and so part of this is this curricular reform that's happening on a, on a global scale about this shift from a knowledge-based society to a process or competency-based society. So that's the first one, and and I, and this is happening like all through Canada and the states and, and in different places where we're realizing that education has not evolved with society, and the demands of society are changing. And so so this this is a worldwide kind of shift. But within that is this idea that you know part of this becoming a 21st century educator is realizing that we are also no longer experts. And I think you know with the age of technology and this idea that you know it's no longer our job just to like bestow knowledge to empty vessels, but, you know, to, to really help transform learners in, into becoming something. And, and so when I, when I think about this, the, 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 the shifting paradigm is really about, you know, rather than the teacher or the students come to the experts, but we really are starting to bring experts to kids because it's just unrealistic for, to say that one teacher or one person is the expert for every single, you know, type of diversity in their class. And so typically what we've done is saying, oh, okay, well, if I'm not an expert in this student, I'm going to send them away to that expert. And if I'm not an expert in this student, I'm going to send them away to that district or that program. And the difference here is, you know, 
the expectation is not that we become experts, but rather than sending the kids away, we're bringing these supports to the kids. Um, because what's happening is there's way more kids that can benefit from these supports than just the kids that are on a caseload. And so part of this is a structural reframing, and it's already happening in a lot of places in the state. Um, with SWIFT schools and, and just that whole shift around co-teaching and um, the collaboration model and, and bringing, you know, bringing like cross-curricular classrooms together. And so it's absolutely happening, but it's really, you know, that alignment of changing teaching practice, but also changing support models. And, and rather than having these siloed compartments, we're really trying to work in, and bring those things together because it's the togetherness of the kids that is the value of their diversity. And so when I'm working with schools, like, this is kind of the sequence we're going through is how do you do that? How do you start to shift those those paradigms and those models? And there's basically there there's five strategies that that i that I go through um, that that are kind of based in research and and help to make this shift both in a classroom and a school and a district level around like how do we how do we do this? How do we move from teaching to homogeneity where diversity is a burden and move towards teaching to diversity where where diversity is actually the strength like that that is what makes us stronger mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so that's basically the process that I'm go that I go through. Do you want me just to like go through those five strategies? Yeah, I'd love to hear what they are. I'm sure people would too. Okay. So yeah, no, for sure. So the 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 five strategies are, and I can kind of go through them a little bit. But the first one is, you know, um, you have to know your students. And I know this sounds so obvious, but you know, as as kids get older, um, I find like especially when I was a student, I noticed, you know we stopped teaching students when we started teaching curriculum. And, you know, I think that this is just a really, really huge reminder that it's not going to look the same everywhere. This isn't a standardized approach. And so, you know, you know, your students are going to be different, you know, in one community versus another community. And so it's really starting to acknowledge, you know, that the, the context and the place where kids are is has to influence their learning. It can't, it can't be the same for everyone. And so I think that, you know, getting to know your students and getting to know, the, di- the diversity of, of the students is, is really important because that's how you respond to it. And I think as, as long as this is going to be standardized, then we're assuming that everyone has to be the same kind of color um, or the same or the same homogenous end. And, and then just fighting that is, is impossible because what we have in common is actually our diversity. And so that's the first one. And even if you can't shift this on a, on a on a global or a district scale, you can still do that in your classroom. So who are those kids in front of you? How are you getting to know them? Um, how are you finding out what their strengths are? How are you finding out what their interests are? Then actually using that and pulling that into um, what we're actually teaching and how we're responding to them. So that's just the first one is is getting to know students, giving kids a voice in in um, in how they learn and what they need to learn, and and allowing them kind of the choice and flexibility to show their learning in different ways. So that's the first one. The second one is my favorite one because I think that uh, my life would have been totally different if if. Um, I had been taught this way, and I think that this is really more of an era thing versus an experience thing, but um, for a very, very, very long time, we have taught to deficit, and, and it makes sense because education is really based in that deficit model of, of that medical model of education where, you know, if, if kids aren't if our kids aren't where they should be, we need to assess them, diagnose them, and remediate, um, and that's historically, you know, everywhere. But teaching to strengths looks at things a little bit differently, and so, you know, rather than looking at what kids are missing, you're looking at what kids, what they have, what do they bring, and then starting with that, and there's, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that that means you never work on your stretches, but um, you, you absolutely are still working on things you need to work on that you're not as good at, but we're always starting with strength and, and what we bring and what we can do. Um, I, I kind of think about this, you know, if we think about the different groups that we make in schools, so often the groups that we bring together, the criteria is based on deficit. And um, I walked into a school one day with, and the whole elementary 
um, was filled with um, students who had drawn self-portraits of themselves, and there was like a little speech bubble that said, "I'm a genius at." And all of these kids were able to finish that finish that statement. I'm a genius at, you know, reading. I'm a genius. Someone, one little guy said, "I'm a genius at making spitball guns." You know, and I, and I think <laughs> you know, I read these, and uh, and, I, and, I, and I stood there, and I'm like, "Could I answer that question?" You know, like. But I'm a genius at like could I answer it comfortably because I can tell you that I cannot answer it comfortably and I think a lot of people who are adults can't because we absolutely did not grow up this way we can we can list all the things we're not good at but it's very very hard to, to answer like what are we a genius at but the interesting part about this is that a, a student came up to me and uh, there was one student who said I'm a genius at Rube Goldberg machines do you know what those are yeah those are like the like the game mousetrap right like you one thing causes yeah exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. and and so we saw that and then we walked down the hallway and then we saw another one that said i'm a genius at Ruth goldberg machines and this kid says hey they should hang out and it just kind of totally hit me and i'm like oh my goodness like that's how we find our friends is, is through what we love not what we're not good at and then i thought like all of the ways that we organize kids in school is based on deficits and i'm thinking like how would school look different if we organized by strength and and so i mean it's just kind of starting to play and imagine these types of things like do we know what kids love and, and how are we pulling that in and and teaching to that and i think the whole inquiry process that's coming in education right now really really helps to to foster that like how are we getting to know kids and letting them like have some passion in this in this learning and connecting them to that so that's the second one teach the strength um the third one is my absolute favorite um it is called the planning pyramid and this is um a framework from the 90s it's still good um, but basically it kind of turns around how we plan so usually what we do is we start teaching from where kids should be, and then we, we move backwards and try and individualize it after the fact, um, which is very, very hard because every time you do that, it's a deficit, and kids learn very, very early that a deficit means that they look don't look good, and then that's often where behavior comes. Um, what the planning pyramid talks about is rather than starting from challenge and go back and but going backwards, you start from access and add on challenge. So I kind of think of it like a video game. If everybody were to go buy the same video game today, where would everyone start? Oh, the big level one. I mean, we start right. Yeah, at the beginning. At the Everyone beginning. starts at the beginning together. Like, yeah, level one or whatever. Like, it, it, like that's how you that's how you learn how to play the game. Now, if I said everyone play for twenty four hours, where is everyone going to end? I'd still be at level one with my lack of skill in this department, but other people would be like on level eight or ten or twelve, right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Totally. Like everyone ends in different places, and so usually what we would do is say. You know, everyone has to pass the game in 24 hours, and then we try and go backwards and be like, okay, well, you do level five, and you do level 10, and you just turn it on. You know, whereas this way, we totally switch it. Everyone start together. You know, like everyone try and get past the first level. And if you can do that, see if you can get to level five. And if you can do that, see if you can get to level 10. And so rather than trying to get everyone to end in the same place, we focus on everyone starting in the same place. And it's so much easier to plan that way than it is to go backwards mm-hmm. because, I mean, you. It, there's so much diversity in the classroom that you can individualize it for every single one of the people if, if if needed, and we just don't have we just don't have the bodies for that. We don't have the time to make 31 individual programs. But it's also becoming really impossible to just have one program for 30 individuals. And so, what I like about the planning pyramid, it really you know breaks up goals into three chunks and and looks at it. You know what's what's the essential chunk? That's where we're going to start. Where everyone's successful, and then how can we add on challenge? Um, but also letting go of the fact that some kids might not get to the most challenging part of a goal, 
but they'll get to the to the essential part of the goal. But the the point is that everyone's playing the video game, right? Nobody can't play the video game, and and I think um, it, it's really looking at this like what are what are what's a continuum of success rather than what's the one standard that everyone has to get to at the same time in the same way. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the planning pyramid. Does that kind of make sense so far? Oh yeah, I'd still be at level one. Don't get me wrong, but. Uh... <laughs> Oh, totally, because the next, because then the next part of this is like, what supports are in place, right? Right. Like, what, what are the supports? Yes, I would right. need some scaffolding. A lot. So, of oh, totally, right. And you know, and other people will be like, they'll stay up for twenty four hours to pass that game, you know, based on their experience and strength. But I think like looking at both those people who come, you know, people who aren't big gamers and people who are big gamers, they can still play the game. Mm-hmm. But what success looks like looks like for them might be different. So that's kind of looking at what the planning pyramid looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, the next strategy is is one that's near and dear to my heart because you know we can make we can make grade levels or grade you know grade bands as very very accessible if we if we do just that like start from access and challenge. But there's still going to be kids who are kind of the outliers and these are the outside of the outside pins who usually have individual programs and they're the students that we need to either you know create an additional access point because. Um, they need significantly more support, like they have um, a disability or or are like at risk, or they need something else because even even the access point isn't accessible for them. And so this is kind of you know stretching that continuum to you know include a new access point that is designed specifically for kids. And so this is where a lot of my research comes in: is how can we kind of take take a continuum of a grade and then really really stretch that for those students who have those significant disabilities. Um, but what makes that inclusive is, is that becomes the new starting point for everyone. And, and it, it really, what it becomes is kind of that prior knowledge that we assume kids already have. But on the other end of the spectrum is, you know, we have kids who are profound, who need profound challenge, you know, and, and they're outside of the green band in terms of cognition on the other end of the scale. And so um, how can we, you know, instead of creating a new program for them, but actually extending the continuum that already exists to provide an extension or a challenge goal for them. And so, you know, rather than having these individual programs, we're, we're creating this continuum that, that directly matches the students in the room that includes the grade that, that you're in, but also stretches it for those outliers. Um, but the difference, I think, between this strategy and what other more typical uh, strategies are in terms of differentiation is that it's not a choice of path. Um, everyone's taught everything because I think what, what we're missing here is, you know, there's a lot of kids that can benefit from supports for kids with special needs and they don't have special needs. And there's a lot of kids that can benefit from challenge and um, kind of extended goals who aren't gifted. And so I think that, you know, creating this continuum, you know, designed for specific kids, but when you actually get to teaching, you bust that open and you teach everything to everybody. But then we're also starting to hand over the challenge up to kids to decide how far they go. And, and you know, less saying, you know, this is for you. It was designed for you, but available to anybody. And I think that that's how we kind of fill in the gaps for learners that need support, but aren't on a caseload or don't have a designation. Um, and that's where that universal design thing comes into, and that's the changing your aim. You start with who needs support, and your other outside pin is those who need challenge, and then the pins will knock down each other kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the extension part. And then the very, very, very last one is looking at support. And this one, like, is so important because in education, we have this very strange relationship with supports. Um, we kind of have this weird, like, thinking that supports is cheating. And 
you know, that they're only for some kids or you have to kind of prove that you need them. And it's very, very strange because as soon as we leave school, we're surrounded by support all the time. Like, you know, like I had a coffee this morning. I have an alarm clock when I wake up. Like I have a, a backup camera in my car. Like supports are, 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 see, are being seen as efficient as soon as you leave, as soon as you leave school, right? And, and so there's this weird relationship with supports. And so I kind of look at supports as, you know, we have to design supports just like we design goals and teaching, but we take the same approach in that supports are not just for some, they're designed for specific kids, but available to everybody. And, and we can go back to that, to the UDL metaphor of the ramp in a building, right? Like it makes way more sense to put a ramp in a building before the building is built than after. But once you build it, although that's designed for people with disabilities, physical disabilities, you know, there isn't ramp police. There isn't someone standing there saying, no, you can't use this because you're not in a wheelchair, right? Like it's designed for people in wheelchairs, but anyone can use it because, you know, kids, there's kids in strollers and, you know, kids on skateboards, like other people can benefit from that. So it's taking that exact same idea and then applying it to a classroom. So what are the supports that kids need, but then letting anyone use them? And so those are kind of the five different strategies. And I think that most of us do those things, but it's really being um, putting attention to design. Um, I think one of the most underutilized resources in education is design. Um, and you could compare that to architecture. Like you will save so much time and money if, if we pay attention to what we do before we teach um, and what we do before we build, rather than trying to retrofit all the time. Whereas I see, I see as especially in special education, a lot of what we do is retrofit support and retrofit goals to, to fit an already existing classroom or program or plan. So that that's it. That's the book. You just got like an overview. <laughs> and in the book, you also share some examples and success stories of what it looks like when inclusion is done well. So um, the, what does that look like? We've got the research behind it, right? And we know the strategies that, you, that yeah. you're trying, but, you know, could you share with us an example of, of what it looks like when it is done well? Because I think oftentimes that's really hard for people. Like they're on board. Mm -hmm. They got your message. They know what you're saying. It totally makes totally. sense. And then what? What does that look like? Yeah, and you know what, and I love this, and I love this, because I think, you know, the generation that we are as teachers, like, I didn't go to school like this, like, the students with disabilities in my classes or in my school, like, they weren't in my class, and so I don't, you know, when I came, became a teacher, I didn't have the visual of what this could look like or what the possibility was, and so I think part of this mission is really exactly that, is what does this look like? Like, what does it actually look like? Because I think at heart, teachers are very, very creative. And I think once they see something and they get an idea, they'll take it and they run. And so I think right now it's really just sharing examples of what this looks like. Um, and so what I tried to do in the book is really kind of tell the stories of these specific students that I've worked with um, who, have, who have shown me what's possible. Because the thing is, is once you see it, you can't go back. You can't, you can't go back to to the segregated models because you see the benefits of it. And so I just think of some of the kids that I worked with where, you know, um, you know, like I'm just thinking of a, a one, one story in the book of a little guy um, who, who was in grade one and I actually went um, for a technology consult for him. And, you know, he, he was blind and he had a physical disability and, you know, we were kind of trying to, trying to figure out, he, he, was, he, he had just come to Canada as a refugee and so there was a lot of new and a lot of changes. And his teacher that he was in, um, she was originally trained as an art teacher. And so she was trying to figure out, like, how am I going to make this work for, for this little guy? And so what she did was she, she was doing um, a unit around using descriptive words in language. And she found a book, and it's called um, I'm Not Your Dinosaur, I think that's what it's called. 
And it basically says, you know, this is not my dinosaur. This dinosaur is too pokey. This is not my dinosaur. This dinosaur is too soft. And so she used that book because that, those, those describing words have texture. And so that's what our, the student now we can, we can connect to because, because he has a vision impairment, but he can, he can communicate through touch. And so what this teacher did was she, all of the students in the class made a book and they had to create their own page using textures and materials to describe what their dinosaur was. And but the, but the, the final project was to create a book for the student with a disability. And so um, I was there when they gave him the book and he sat there and he's feeling every page and the kids read this book to him. And I'm sitting there watching and I'm like, there didn't need to be any adults in this room. Like this was like 25, like seven year olds paying the most like engaged attention to this little guy and I was just like this is it like this is it like they're learning from him right now and I think like like and that's the part that I see that's different is you know having the student in the room like absolutely it's a human rights issue but the part that we're not but I don't think we, we see enough in, in today's schools is that having him there was actually a contribution like there was no better way to teach that without him there you know and I think and I think that's the part of this like when I saw these kids learning from this, this kid um, with, with these profound disabilities and I'm thinking like I couldn't do that better like the teacher couldn't do that better there's no real out that could do that better like it was the experience of living it that really made it magical and when you saw that you, you couldn't you couldn't go back to the student learning in, in a separate room in a separate space like him being there made that experience so much richer for the kids without disabilities and I think I think that's the part here that that's critical is that we need them we need these kids in the classes because they, they teach things. If we could figure out how to get them, we'll get everyone because they teach things that, that we can't. We can't do it. And, and so I think that that's, that was one of the, the, the stories in the book is about this little guy and how he taught us. And, um, and there, there was people that questioned his existence, you know, and I think, and I think that this is, this is the shift we need to make is, 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 yes, it's about human rights. But it's really more about critical disability and that this is this is a need Like we need. We need people with disabilities in our diverse communities. So let's talk a little bit about the community, because we've talked about like the classroom community, but um, it, it also sounds like a, the larger community needs to be involved if you're making a shift um, to this type of diversity and inclusion program in your school. Or yeah, yeah. Um, so what mm -hmm. does that look like? Um, I think one of the one of the biggest um, community perspectives that I can pull in are parents of kids without disabilities. Um, I think that you know, like like I have this vision for inclusion in my brain, and I think one of the one of the the ways that I know we'll have to get there is when parents of kids without disabilities start to catch on that this is a benefit, that this is not just a benefit for the kids with disabilities, but it's a benefit for their kid, and you know, I kind of have a vision for parents to start to see, like, it's not a burden to have diversity in the classroom. It's not a burden to have different language and cultures and abilities in the classroom, but it's actually, like, better. Because if you think about the kids, when they leave school, they're not organized by grade. They're not organized by ability. You know, the world is diverse. And so I think, you know, what I see in the community part of this, especially with parents, is that if the goal of education is to create contexts and situations that kids are going to have to negotiate when they leave the world. Having these diverse classes should be demanded, right? Like it's, and so it's really trying to like talk to talk to the community and and you know organizations and parents and teachers to see like this shift to diversity and responding to diversity is is so important 
yes, for kids with disabilities, but you know, this is actually about everybody. And and I think for the community, part of it is is you know, I ask parents to really think about this, and teachers to really think about this. Like, you know, how would your classroom change? The more diverse it is, not the less diverse. And and I think, you know, part of this is is kind of making starting to kind of trust the process that. You know, this is going to look different, and we're going to have to teach different, and we're going to have to parent different, but the outcomes of it are so magical, you'll never be able to go back. And, and so I think for parents, I, I think for parents, it's part of this is really, really supporting the diversity in classrooms and, and actually requesting it, you know, calling up a school and saying, you know, I want my kids to be learning with kids who are different. I want my kids to be learning with people from different cultures. And, and I think um, in languages and genders and ability, because I think like that, that's the part that, that's missing in all of this is that there's still this, this quest to homogenize and that, you know, being with kids of the same is still desired. And so I think that that, that's a shift from the community that I think will be really helpful is that, you know, homogeneity is, is, is not the goal and it's, it's almost a disservice. And so that's part of it. I think um, the other part of it is, is this idea of support and, you know, allowing kids to have support um, from a classroom level, from a school level, from a community level, um, and, and not when it's too late. Like, give them, give it to them now. They don't have to prove it. They don't, you know, they don't have to, to to meet a certain criteria to get it. And I think, you know, I always kind of make the joke, like, the day that we can, you know, regulate supports from kids is, is the day that teachers have to get through a school year without chips, chocolate, alcohol, and spring break. You know, like, <laughs> we all use supports. And I think it's really, like, destigmatizing that at, 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 a, at a large community level. Like, people need supports. And it's not if you need them, it's, it's how to use them is, is really the question. And, and so that becomes in behavior and it comes in social skills and it comes in, you know, learning supports. But in every single way, it's really moving away from this regulation and this, like I say, this weird relationship we have. It's just, it's not cheating at all. Um, and then I think the last part I would say about community is really looking at our administrators as leaders. And, you know, they really, really set the tone in our schools and communities about, you know, who, who is the community in the building and, and how are we teaching and responding to the diversity in that school. And I think, you know, those administrators play a very, very key role in, in um, setting that, setting that, that attitude and that standard and that um, perspective of, you know, this is, this is for everybody and we need them. And it's not just about charity, you know, does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. we need them. This is contribution. Mm -hmm. So from a teacher's point of view, then, um, you know, what is it that they need to do if they're interested in um, forming this larger community or making this shift of inclusion? Um, we're you know, thinking about mm. aiming for the outside bowling pins, right? Um, yeah. What do they need to do? I think for teachers, the number one thing that teachers can do is open up their doors. Um, I think teaching is very, very historically isolating because we have for a long time been expected to be the expert. And so this is different. And so I think the number one thing that teachers can do to really like move to an inclusive um, approach is, is to open up their doors and start, you know, collaborating and um, collaborating. And this is the hard part, collaborating with people that you don't normally collaborate with. Um, I remember when I, when I first started to connect with teachers, it was very, very hard because for the first time I had to work with people who didn't agree with me. I had to work with people who had different philosophies than me. And, and it's scary. Um, and so I think part of this is, is you know, starting to, to look at people as, you know, uh, as a collective group. And so rather than saying, I have to meet the needs of these kids, we have to meet the needs of these kids. And one of the first things I did when I was, when I was a school-based, like, enrolling teacher was 
um, if anyone if anyone came to my class to pull out kids, I said, you're welcome to join us, you know, and um, but like my kids aren't leaving, you know, just like setting the standard that we learn together. And if there was specific skills and strategies that needed to be taught for an individual, I said, we're going to teach that to everybody, you know, so that was one of the very first things that I tried was, you know, those consultants and support people that were coming into my room. I'm just like, let's work together to teach everybody rather than you take that kid and I'll take these kids like all of these kids can benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's, it's, it's really trying to find those connections in your building about you know living teachers are getting burnt out like we can't do more we don't know more we can't know more um our brains are full and so it's really like let's get some support let's get some help and so rather than trying to do more let's let's get people on board to kind of let's say two people teaching 30 is, is way more effective than one person teaching 29 and, and so i think you know really finding those those allies and those supports and those experts in your community and bring them to the kids and just start playing around with what that might look like um, if you're if you if you are a teacher and you, and you don't have um, a, a student with a significant disability in your class, like go down that hallway, find out where that room is, and and say like you know I want to try this. Um, I had a teacher once do that, and it just blew my mind. And it was one of the first one of the first um, you know doors that opened for inclusive for the entire school was you know a classroom teacher said you know what um, I I have a student and her brother has Down syndrome and and she wants him in this class, and so. Let's see what this could look like, and and so I think it's it's also like starting to to bridge some of those those hallways in, in high schools and mm -hmm. being like, wait a second, could this could this look different, and what could it do? And I so I think you know teachers are creative and, and they're and they're so and they're they're so good at you know creating things once they know what's possible, but it's also I think allowing ourselves and giving ourselves permission to know that this isn't something we have to do alone and to really find your people in a building and in a district and in your community to help you do it. Um, and I think that that will take away a lot of the fear of the unknown, I guess. There's one more thing I think we need to consider, especially at a community level, and this is really thinking about that idea of diversity of our students. So, you know, now that we know this is not just about ability and disability, but we're looking at, you know, all of the things that make us diverse, you know, gender and cultural language, et cetera, the other thing that I think is really, really important to reflect on, and this is hard to do sometimes, but, you know, is really, really honestly checking ourselves and asking, do we treat all of these diversities equal? And, you know, for, for a very long time, like, we, we segregated by race, and we, we now know that's not okay. But, you know, if, if we look at this, these diversities as equal, we're in the stage right now where we do segregate by ability and disability, and, and can we look at those things with equal weighting, like, is this going to be the thing that's not okay in 10 years? And I think it's, it's a really important question to ask ourselves, especially as equal citizens, is, is, is do we look at these diversities equally? And if we don't, that's a conversation that needs to happen. Um, because I think the part of the importance of the equality of what makes us diverse is, is, is seeing these things as contributions and, you know, like, you know, seeing different cultures as a contribution, and seeing different languages as a contribution, seeing different ability as a contribution, rather than this thing we have to do after the fact. And as long as we see it that way, it's always going to be segregative. And so I think it's, it's an important question. It's a hard question, but it's something I think we really need to think about in terms of um, structures and criteria we use to organize kids in schools. Yeah, I love that. And thinking about, you know, inclusion isn't just for special ed kids. It is, you know, for your English exactly. language learners. It is for your you know, gender and race and diversity, um, religious issues that, that come up in all schools. And instead of like running away from it, let's embrace it and see, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. They are hard conversations. So um, 
yeah. we encourage everybody to, to jump into those challenging conversations as well. Absolutely. And I mean, what, what better life skill is that than to negotiate those types of things? And so I think, you know, for all kids, it's definitely something um, that we have to think about. Definitely. Shelly, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you can follow Shelly on Twitter at TweetSomeMore, M-O-O-R-E, because she has the best handle. Um, and you can follow me <laughs> and, at uh, Snyder underscore Erica. Be sure to check out Shelly's book, One Without the Other, and keep an eye out on her blog, which is BlogSomeMore, M-O-O-R-E, for announcements on another publication from her arriving this fall. Thanks to Paul Teske's Mad Garage Band Skills for providing our music and teaching channel staff for all your hard work getting a new kind of PD up and running. And thanks everyone for listening. If you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Thanks again, Shelly, and we will see everyone next time. Thank you.